Welcome to the Conversations on Peaceful Change, uh, an initiative by the Global Research Network on Peaceful Change. And uh, today we have two distinguished scholars from uh, Professor Scott Sagan from Stanford University and Professor Vipin Narang from MIT. Both of them have uh, written considerable amount of um, articles and books on the issue of nuclear weapons, nuclear order, nuclear non-proliferation, strategies for changing uh, the nuclear system as we witness today. And so we want to focus a little bit on the question of North Korea. And so welcome, gentlemen. Uh, pleasure to have you in Montreal. Um, the big question is, is denuclearization of South, I mean North Korea possible through peaceful means? Uh, under what conditions North Korea would abandon its nuclear weapons? We know that it has a regime insecurity problem and un unless we can solve that problem, which is impossible for, given the conditions uh, we are in, how do we get this uh, transformation without war? <laughs> that's, that's sort of a question. Uh, you can start in Vipin. Uh, sure. Uh, so, uh, first of all, I don't think Kim Jong-un's North Korea will unilaterally disarm and relinquish its nuclear, nuclear weapons. So it depends on what we mean by denuclearization. Um, and I think the North Korean and American uh, working groups over the past 25 years have not agreed upon a uh, common definition of denuclearization. That's worked to keep the process going. But when the rubber hits the road, the problem then becomes, uh, you know, the United States view is that denuclearization means unilateral North Korean disarmament and North Korea you know, has and Kim Jong-un at the Singapore summit signed a declaration saying that North Korea committed to the denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, which in its broadest terms could mean mutual disarmament. Uh, but at the very least, if denuclearization can be used to mean arms control mm -hmm. and slowing the growth of the North Korean program down, I do think that there is uh, an agreement to be had. Uh, and, you know, we may look back actually at the agreement that was supposedly tabled at the Hanoi summit earlier this year uh, and regret passing it up because uh, if Kim Jong-un was serious about closing permanently the Yongbyon facility, which actually has about 300 nuclear weapons production buildings and facilities in it, mm -hmm. that would have had a significant impact on North Korea's ability to sustain plutonium production. Uh, it's the only known source of plutonium in uh, North Korea uh, and a non-trivial proportion of its uranium enrichment. Uh, and so, and tritium as well. And tritium, yeah, fourth of That's right. Tritium. So why did it fall through? That's well. I mean, it could have been. It's, it's you know, for 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 those of us in the U.S., uh, that was the same weekend that Michael Cohen was testifying mm. in front of Congress. President Trump flies over to Hanoi, uh, probably pretty upset about that. John Bolton gets in his ear and says, "These are the North Koreans. They're just taking you for a ride. You have to double down on the Maxwell's position, which is no sanctions relief until uh, the end of." The, the process. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think, so one of the two problems, in my view, have been scoping an agreement and sequencing an agreement. Right. And we focus a lot on scoping, which is what are we, what is the United States asking for in exchange for sanctions relief? Mm -hmm. uh, and there's a disagreement about whether it was going to be the, the North Koreans may have put the Yongbyon facility on the table, uh, but the U.S. has always asked for Yongbyon plus Alpha, right. as uh, the U.S. and South Koreans uh, have formulated it. And that means the facilities outside of Yongbyon also, mm -hmm. which North Korea doesn't even acknowledge. Uh, so there's a scoping question, but then there's a sequencing question. Who's going to go first, right. right? So if even if you, you, the U.S. agreed uh, to exchange Yongbyon for significant sanctions relief, 
the U.S. government might rightly say, look, we've litigated Yang Bian how many times before. We're not going to give you full sanctions relief until the end. And the North Koreans say, well, we've done this. We've taken these steps at the testing site and the missile site. Uh, so you've got to give us something before we do Yang Bian. Uh, but those problems can be solved with snap, snapback provisions. Yes. And, uh, but both of those have to be worked out, I think, for an Proper agreement to be yeah, yeah, but I think an agreement could be had yes. on those grounds. What do you think, Scott? Um, well, let's go back not just to Hanoi, but to Singapore, because I think the roots of the problem uh, lie in the um, vague uh, agreement that is just four, it's like a one-page document that was agreed upon. You could drive an ICPM through the whole thing. Well, all arms control agreements have a mixture of specificity and then some ambiguity left in to, yes. for people to work out or to uh, leave scope for different interpretations. The Singapore agreement was all ambiguity and, and no specificity. Mm. Um, and so both sides can quite legitimately say, we're following the agreement. Kim Jong-un could say, look, I, I verbally said that we're not going to have ICBM tests because we don't need them. Mm -hmm. So we can test everything else and learn from those tests right. how to have better uh, ICBM capability. Mm -hmm. uh, the Trump administration can say, we volunteered that we won't have those provocative military war games, mm -hmm. but we'll have other kinds of exercises. Um, and both sides can say, well, we're, not, we're following the, right. what we shook hands on. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that that just leads a lot of room for potential problems. At Hanoi, I think both sides decided the other side needed it more than they did. Mm -hmm. So Kim Jong-un reportedly lectured Donald Trump repeatedly on domestic politics of the United States. You need an agreement from us. Well, and I'm giving you a really good deal that will look really great at home. Yes. And you can take this. And Bolton kept saying, no, no, it's going to take you for a ride. Don't do this. Mm -hmm. um, to me, it's not clear that in the next round, if there is one, that Trump won't actually agree to something mm -hmm. like what happened uh, in Hanoi. But that's not getting rid of the nuclear mm -hmm. weapons. Yes. That's helping. Yes. It reduces how many more they can get, but right. their uranium rich. So that leads to because Trump is probably buying time. Uh, Kim is buying time for different purposes. And one thing is from a negotiation strategic uh, engagement between two asymmetrical partners, this poses a lot of questions. You go without a proper preparation and could proco. I mean, the expectations are so different. And the U.S. power to coerce this country is much limited than any other other cases, even Iran for that matter, today. And that shows that diplomacy without background work, without proper preparation, can lead to disasters. And this could even lead to a disaster because of the expectation, you know, inequity in expectations. What do you think of the lesson we are drawing from this experience? for negotiations, negotiating arms control, especially in the non-proliferation era, area, sorry. I, think, I mean, time works on North Korea's side probably better than it works on, on the U.S. side because the at least for a period in 2017, early 2018, mm -hmm. China and Russia got onto the maximum pressure campaign, and that probably did squeeze Kim Jong-un and led to the Singapore summit, which... Uh, as, as I agree completely with Scott, it was so vague, had so many holes in it, and the bill finally came due in Hanoi. Uh, and so now the question will be, can we have another round uh, where you know, we get a deal on the table that's as good as Hanoi, but in, that interim, in the interim period, Kim Jong-un has improved his missile force, expanded his missile force, 
uh, produced enough missile material since Singapore, probably upper estimate a dozen more nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. And if at the same time, China and Russia have taken the air out of the maximum pressure campaign. Uh, and so enforcing the sanctions mm -hmm. regime, which is really the only source of leverage the U.S. has, uh, has become much more difficult. So who needs to deal more at this point as Kim Jong-un gets stronger and stronger with his nuclear force and doesn't have as acute a need for sanctions relief? Although I'm sure it would be, he would love to have it. And he's you know, breaking the alliance between South Korea and the United States at the same time. Uh, I think time works in Kim Jong-un's favor. So in a lot of ways, the, the North Korean rope-a-dope strategy about on and off working level talks all works to their advantage. And so I don't know if we, if we have another su summit, whether Yongbyon itself will even be, be on the table again, because Kim Jong-un may think, well, now you'll take even less because you need a deal and you're an election year President Trump. And we don't know what the Democratic president, if it is, Correct. is going to do with this. Yeah. So what do you think of it, this, this planning, without going to a proper uh, understanding beforehand and preparing this uh, early on, it seems like a one-man show or two-man show, which did not pan out the way we expect in the diplomatic world. Well, that's because diplomacy is hard. Mm -hmm. And the reason why sometimes you get very big agreements with lots of annexes, as right. you saw with the JCPOA yeah. or with New START, is that um, professionals want to define things. Mm -hmm. They want to have uh, strict definitions so that both sides are fully understanding of what compliance is. And President Trump, not being a particularly good businessman, but mm -hmm. a person who learned to negotiate and then yes. would back away from the negotiations yes. and he's just used to and he has supreme overconfidence yes. in his own capabilities. Yes. Um, I personally think that John Bolton didn't want an agreement and that's partly why he sabotaged it. He tried to sabotage it the first time by saying we want to have before Singapore, mm. we want to have a Libya-like agreement. Yes. And that was a reference I think not to the killing of Gaddafi, but was a reference to the taking all the materials uh, and the centrifuges out of Libya and bringing them back to the United States. Yes. But President Trump immediately personalized it yes. and said that we want to follow the Gaddafi model. Now, we won't actually follow it unless, of course, they don't disarm, in which case we might. And that's the kind of thing that just sabotages an it's agreement. When exactly what Kim wants to avoid. Yeah. That leads to this question of learning from all the crises, all the denuclearization of the past. I mean, at our round table at McGill today, we mentioned the, the past experiences. Ukraine gave it up uh, with an agreement to protect its borders. The great powers, especially Russia, no longer adheres to that. Then Libya model, uh, Gaddafi gave it up uh, with a lot of promises then his body was dragged on Tripoli. And so why would Kim ever give it up? I mean, you know, Kim is not going to get it. I don't think he will. I mean, because <laughs> this is his only trump card for existence. As a, so the existential deterrence for him is existential. I don't, yeah, and, and I, I don't think any 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 reasonable person actually thinks Kim Jong-un is going to willingly surrender his nuclear weapon, give Trump the keys to the nuclear kingdom. Mm. Uh, at the same time, you know, I was a little more optimistic about the leader-to-leader -leader approach at first. Mm -hmm. If it set up a working level process that got into the weeds and the substance to lead to, you know, uh, what I think Began at one point, who's a special representative, now soon to be Deputy Secretary of State, a comprehensive deal that's implemented in a step-by-step -step process. Mm -hmm. So the U.S. can say, you know, complete denuclearization at the end of the road knowing full well you probably won't get there, but there are these intermediate steps that include disarmament, uh, sorry, uh, arms control, slowing the growth of the program, 
vertically. Um, and, you know, that didn't happen, and it became a, a love affair. Mm -hmm. And Kim Jong-un knew, why would I, and bet rightly so, why would I engage in working-level talks if I know that I can meet with the President of the United States directly? Right. And I think that was reinforced when President Trump went to Panmunjom himself after Hanoi mm -hmm. uh, in July of 2019. Went, first President to step foot in North Korea to pick up the 15 yards that we lost at Hanoi. <laughs> and that was just to get the working-level talk started. And mm -hmm. Kim Jong-un knew at that point, President Trump wants it more than me. Mm -hmm. And he, uh, he wants working level talks and he wants an agreement and that gave him the upper hand. And I think that's why in this, you know, we've seen the missile tests and at Stockholm, the North Koreans basically got up and walked away. Mm. I think the problem is regime security, we don't put that as a big concern for nuclear weapon acquisition. Iran, for instance, if it ever gets, uh, and potentially Turkey, we were talking about. So you have written about this idea of short uh, term pursuit strategy, uh, then kind of hiding with a sort of great power protection. I mean, China now, uh, one thing I've read recently that China is increasing uh, support. There's a lot of Chinese tourists are coming, that he is gaining a lot more economically from China than it was before. Don't be. Lots of links, links, leaks, and the sanctions. Yes. And China is one of the biggest leaks. And the US China interactions, US Russia interactions, they're using this as a regional strategy to contain the U.S. presence in the region as well. So, without the great powers agreeing, and that is what I want to come to conclusion or discussion, the great powers are at a real bad situation with arms control today. The world nuclear order is really not helping this process of denuclearization or the so-called horizontal proliferation because of the vertical level we have so much going on with no control whatsoever. Arms control is dead. So what is the relationship between this larger picture we are seeing, the global nuclear order, and this regional context, where you cannot tell these guys, okay, give it up because this is good for you, but we will build our own capability. The old question of horizontal and vertical connection. Well, um, unless you have cooperation between China, Russia, and the United States, you're not going to get uh, really deep progress with North Korea. Yes. Um, Ryan just said something about, well, I don't know any reasonable person who believes in this. Um, I know a lot of people who do believe that they'll be disarmament. I would question whether they're reasonable people, <laughs> but they believe that Kim Jong-un is less afraid of the United States than he is afraid of his own people. Mm -hmm. And that the way to get him to take a risky disarmament is by punishing him so much mm -hmm. that he's afraid of being overthrown. Mm -hmm. Now, I think everything we know about North Korea in the past is just that that's not going to happen. No. Uh, but that that's the kind of argument... But the fear is there. People say that, and, and whether they're reasonable or not, um, I would question, but they believe it. And that's the extreme John Bolton hawkish. The maximum pressure. Maximum pressure kind of kind of view. But and that view would require China yeah. to put the to it's not important. provide a safety valve. Yeah. And I think uh, it's an interesting question whether you know China's often had this relaxed view of horizontal proliferation, uh, and it seems to me that China is more afraid of a weak and collapsed North Korea than it is a nuclear North Korea. Yeah. And as a result, it's never going to let it get to that point. And if that's the case, then that theory, uh, let's call it the Bolton theory, uh, 
I think it has is is, is suspect. I think it's deeply Then you need South Korean support for such a strategy, Japan support. If there's a war, Japan would be a good target for North Korea. Probably the primary target. And so, in a way, this is not a simple problem between the United States and uh, So North why not? Yeah. Doyens of nuclear strategy and proliferation, why not just say, we have to figure out a way to coexist and live with you don't have to accept it formally. Yes. Oh, can we coexist and live with a nuclear North Korea? Yeah, I that's a question for you too, actually. I, I think I think we have very little choice but to do Correct. so. Yeah, we have to I do agree. so while saying that this is not something we accept permanently, um, just as we didn't accept that we're going to always have a real hostile relationship with the Soviet Union. Yes, we said that you know we'll we'll contain and we'll have arms control, but arms control with North Korea will be different than a you know, nuclear disarmament for, yeah. uh, complete push. So for example, this kind of scenario I worry about is the following. In, in um, summer 2017, we had this incident where um, in Hawaii, a uh, emergency response operator issued mm -hmm. a warning that a missile was incoming and said, this is not a, a practice, this is not a test, this is not a test. Um, in parts of Hawaii, numbers of people panicked. Should have just gone indoors and closed the windows and hope that if a weapon lands, it's far enough away and you won't get hit by the, the radiation and the fallout that way. But lots of people went outside thinking that was going to make them safer, which it wasn't going to make them safer, <laughs> mm -hmm. right? But in Washington, no one panicked. Mm -hmm. And the reason why people in Washington or at Omaha at the Strategic Command or at NORAD, the North American Air Defense Command, didn't panic were three reasons. One, we have lots of redundant sensors, and they didn't say that anything was coming. B, we have professionals, and they said, hey, don't do that. They screwed up and, and immediately issued a counter order. And three, we didn't really think that North Korea was about to launch a weapon against Hawaii immediately. Now, imagine that something like that happened in North Korea today. First, they don't have very good alternative warning systems, so if they, one, did give a false warning, they'd be problematic. Two, they don't have a professional core in that way because people there are either yes men mm -hmm. or they're scared to death. Right. And if you make a mistake in North Korea, you don't get fired from your job. Mm -hmm. You're killed. You're killed. Yes. And then lastly, Kim Jong-un does think that the United States might attack because Donald Trump kept telling him we might attack you. <laughs> so you combine those three. So that's why having what used to be called operational arms control, yeah. by having some military-to-military -military talks, yes. by saying, look, we want to have disarmament in the long term, hmm. but in the short term, we want to let you know that confidence our, our exercises will be moving this far away from your border, hmm. but no further. Hmm. If we want to have agreements about if a ship is uh, in what area, how could they get a warning that they're entering into into waters that the other side hmm. feels are contested. So this leads to a final question sort of thing that we need to think of nuclear learning by these new nuclear states and also how we respond to them uh, in crisis situations. This applies to India, Pakistan too. It seems like a lot of wrong lessons are being learned from previous crises and how they reacted to us. Therefore, we can right. action reaction can be harsher. And that's the risky part of it. And we don't have a mechanism for teaching people. I mean, during the Cold War, I remember we had simulations and all kinds of track two meetings. It seems like we are leaving this to a very much a, a, a random chancy thing for these countries to figure out. And, and it's, it's, it's depressing to see that 
the community that should be teaching them are not at all part of this process. And we really need to think of broadening the arms control agenda beyond agreements, beyond denuclearization, how to prevent a nuclear war, a catastrophic one in South Asia in particular. So maybe just a final thought on how do we learn, how do you engage in these regional actors? How do we engage in a mutual learning process? So, I mean, I, I, I agree that the dynamic is incredibly dangerous because I think the you know, the, the narrative initially when India and Pakistan, for example, mm. let's take a, you know, kind of a, it's a, it's a miniature hot war situation where you had mutual nuclearization at the same time. They're each other's adversaries, but they bordered each other. Mm. So all the things that induced, you know, the very, very ugly stability in the Cold War between the U.S. and Soviet Union, distance, mm. robust command and control, uh, hotlines, confidence building, they did, they did not exist in India and Pakistan and still do not exist in India and Pakistan uh, scenario and the the proximity is actually probably the big one of the biggest variables you can't solve right, right? so their warning times are close to zero and a false warning in, the, in South Asia can lead to catastrophe very quickly mm -hmm. but the other lesson I think the that they they drawn increasingly uncomfortable with is that once you have nuclear you know once you have mutual nuclearization then you you you, you all your military options are off the table mm -hmm. And India and Pakistan are trying to test to see how far they can go with that directly. Risk-taking behavior. Risk taking behavior mm -hmm. with each other. Mm -hmm. The U.S. and Soviet Union, they probed each other certainly in Berlin, uh, Cuban Missile Crisis, but off in the periphery if it was you know, the Vietnam War. But in earlier in 2019 in the Balako Crisis, it's the first time you had a nuclear power use kinetic air power mm -hmm. on the sovereign territory of another nuclear state. Mm -hmm. It's also the first time that, you know, for 20 years, India has suffered mainland terrorism mm -hmm. from its nuclear adversary on its soil. So how, how do states negotiate this ratcheting up of these probes mm -hmm. without triggering escalation? Right. And I it's think not a tacit going yeah. on. Yeah. And a lot of randomness, right? Because yeah, if yeah. the, uh, as, as I, I said earlier today, if you re-ran the Balakot crisis mm -hmm. 10 times, I think a majority of the time you've gotten a much more highly escalated conventional right. Uh, crisis and one that could have run up if ground forces start getting involved very quickly uh, on on nuclear on nuclear red lines and we forget that India deployed or wanted people to believe it deployed the Arihant mm -hmm. in the middle of the crisis yes uh, and there's no question that nuclear weapons are going to be salient in the next crisis because mm -hmm. uh, they were salient uh, for the first time in ways that they hadn't been in previous India-Pakistan crisis in the Balako crisis. Mm -hmm. I so, final word to you, Scott. I would just say nuclear learning is very, very difficult. Mm -hmm. It is um, sometimes said that Otto von Bismarck, the German uh, statesman, once said that only a fool learns mm -hmm. from his mistakes. Mm -hmm. A wise man learns from other people's mistakes. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, statesmen, whether it's in India or Pakistan, or generals, whether it's in North Korea or South Korea, tend not to look at other people's mistakes. Mm -hmm. They tend to have to go through that experience themselves. Mm -hmm. And that means that, that learning can happen, but it means it's very risky because you don't learn from other people's problems because you think that doesn't really apply, apply to us. Apply to us. Mm -hmm. And uh, well, Cargill was supposed to be the Cuban Missile Crisis, but it seems like people have forgotten that now. That's right. Thank you very much, gentlemen. It was wonderful, you, uh, wonderful to, to have you in Thank Montreal, you. and uh, let's hope to continue this conversation again. Thank you.